Amen. So today is the big theme um, on guidance. And, uh, and, and wanted to start with this. I'm not a big storyteller. If you've been here for a while, you know that about me. I don't usually open sermons. I usually just get right into the teaching. Some of you might like that. Some of you are like, wow, like, you know, do a little like setting up. On it. But I am going to start with a story today. Um, and it's going to illustrate one point, which is probably true for many of you. But my wife, Helen, could tell all of you, it is really, really true of me. It is one of my true vices. I have many vices. This is one of them, which is I hate getting lost. I hate getting lost. Even if I take like a wrong turn off a highway exit and, and the, the mass sum is that I wasted two and a half minutes, it just completely changes my mood. It just gets inside my head. I hate getting lost. One of the stories that always I think of here is this is all the way back in 2003. It's funny. I was, I was thinking about this, trying to remember the specifics of this story. I'm old enough that I know for sure I did not have a cell phone through all of college. Can you imagine that going through all of college? and have a cell phone. Graduated college in 2001. Definitely nobody had a cell phone in high school. Some people started to have cell phones in college. I never had one in college. And this is about a year and a half after college. I'm in grad school in Minnesota, which is not where I grew up. I grew up around here and in New Jersey. And I'm in Minneapolis, St. Paul for grad school, for seminary. And I can't remember for sure, but I don't think I had a cell phone by this point either. This is 2002, 2003. And the reason is that I don't even think I had my cell phone to like with the dying battery have like a light for, for the story here, which is important. So I have some friends, I had some friends back then in grad school who were from Minnesota. I am a city kid. If you are not a city kid, you know that one of the things that separates people who grew up in rural areas and the suburbs from people who grew up in the cities is if there's a lot of noise and a lot of light, I am ready to fall asleep at night. I love a lot of noise and I love a lot of light. Some of you, you moved to New York and you're like, how could I possibly sleep? For me, I go out to the rural area and it's like, I can't see at 10 o'clock at night, my hand in front of my face. There's not a sound in the world. And I am freaked out. I'm like, it's like, it's like a bear going to kill me while I sleep tonight. Like I cannot fall asleep there. And so I had some friends, they're all from Minnesota. And so they're kind of country kids. And, uh, and, and we wanted to go on like a hiking trip to the mountains. Now there aren't any tall mountains out there, but kind of whatever mountains are out there, they kind of went to the top of them and they all went up there first. And I was going to come join them later. And when I was hiking up the mountain, again, not a very tall mountain, it was still light out. And it was maybe, you know, like 6 or 7 p.m. It was in the summertime. We weren't in school at the time. And we hung out for a couple of hours. And then I needed to leave that night. A bunch of them were going to camp there. There was no way I was going to camp outside there, but as a city kid. And so I walked home or walked down to my car. And my car is maybe a mile, a mile and a half down the bottom of the mountain. And on the way down, it's now 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. I get completely lost. There is no one within hearing distance of me. I'm like screaming out loud after a couple of hours. Like, does anybody hear me? Nobody hears me. I cannot see my own hand in front of my face. I have no light on me. I have no ability to do anything. It's, I think, 10 or 11 o'clock when I start walking on the mountain. I do not make my way back to my car until 4 a.m. I am lost on this mountain in the middle of nowhere for six hours. And two things went through my head a lot that night, which are not exactly the same. They're almost like a contradiction. You can feel both back and forth, but it's true. And you see it with Israel in the wilderness as they at least fear that they're getting lost, which is most of us, when we get lost and we feel completely helpless and we don't know where to go, two emotions tend to come to the surface back and forth. One is certainly fear. 
you feel afraid because you're not sure what's coming. I was hearing like rustling in the bushes and I'm like, is that, is that a black bear about to kill me? Is that a, is that a wolf about to come get me? Um, but like what exactly is out there? And I had a sense of, I don't feel safe right here. I don't know what's going to happen in five minutes. I don't know if I'm ever going to find my car. I don't know if I'm going to like starve to death out here. Of course, all irrational, but that's kind of what you're feeling because fear is when you don't know where you're going and you're afraid that where you are up it's going to be dangerous you feel fear and israel regularly is afraid in the wilderness they cower before their enemies they're regularly saying well at the very least you know in egypt we had three square meals a day let's go back there but another emotion that comes up and this is for like smaller experiences of getting lost is more normal for me which is frustration is i want to be there i'm not there and i don't like the delay I don't like the weight. I don't like having to not get what I want to not be where I want. And so when we feel like we're lost, frustration, which manifests itself in grumbling. I'm a huge grumbler. When we get lost, would you agree with that? I'm a huge grumbler when I get lost. And fear, which leads to cowering, which leads to not being able to move forward, which leads to being paralyzed, that getting lost is a really overwhelming experience. At the beginning of your bulletin, I have one of the most famous opening lines in the history of Western literature from Dante's Inferno. And one of the reasons this is such a famous line is because everybody at some point, and for those of you who are in your 20s and in your early 30s, which is most of you at this point, maybe you've already been here. If you haven't, I promise you at some point in your life, you will get here and you will read this, and this will be a great articulation of how you feel. Dante says, midway on our life's journey, I found myself in dark woods, the right road lost. That, such a great depiction of, I thought I knew where I was going in life. I thought I knew what my life was about. And then you reach a season where everything has fallen apart, and you have no idea what's coming. You have no idea who you are anymore. You have no idea how to make sense of things. And now Dante, this is much later in his life. And so he says, to tell about those woods where I get, got lost is hard. So tangled and rough and savage, the thinking of it now, I feel the old fear stirring again. As I thought about this Minnesota story, there were moments where I'm like, oh, I remember how I felt that. And I remember the trembling and how overwhelmed I felt. Death is hardly more bitter, Dante says. And yet, to treat the good I found there as well, I'll tell what I saw. John Goldengay, great Old Testament scholar, says about Israel in the wilderness, this lesson that Israel learned. Nothing is straightforward in the story of the people of God. God's presence with the people does not mean that their progress is uneventful or crisis-free. Many of you, you're hoping that's what faith means, that it means that my life will make sense. It means that stuff that happens to other people won't happen to me, that, that I'll always feel peace. I'll always feel inner calm. I'll always feel like I know where I'm going and what's going on. And Golden Gate says, that's actually not what following God looks like. It's actually not what the life of faith looks like. The journey the people of God take from the initial fulfillment of God's purpose, that is, he gets them out of Egypt, they're no longer slaves, they've been liberated, but to its consummation in the promised land is strewn with disappointments. The way from Egypt to the promised land is strewn with disappointments. Some of that is our fault. That God does lead the way, and we don't listen, we don't follow, and so the disappointment there. Some of that is intentional because God wants to form us. One of the things I've been trying to point out a lot in this series, and so I'll say it one last time, we've got maybe about a month left in this series, is if you would look at a map 
of the Middle East and of Egypt and of Northeastern Africa and of Israel and Palestine, you would notice very quickly that to walk from Egypt, where Israel has been slaves for 400 years, to Canaan, to cross the Jordan River, is not a 40-year journey. It's not a 40-week journey. It is not a particularly long distance. The fact that it takes them 40 years to get there is because their experience was more like mine in the woods in Minnesota. It was only a mile or a mile and a half down to my car, and it took me six hours to find it because I was lost. I didn't know where I was going. And that is so often what the life of faith feels like. And yet, looking back, we heard it in Nehemiah 9. We heard it in Isaiah 63. One of the main lessons Israel learned in the wilderness in those 40 years is that God guides his people, that he never finally lets them be lost. One of the ways the time in the wilderness is typical, is a pattern for us to learn from, is that especially through the pillar of cloud during the day, the sun is still up, and the pillar of fire, when the sun goes down and it's night out, that God was perpetually guiding and leading and protecting his people. And so the first half of the sermon, here's all I want to do. I don't usually do this. I'm just going to read you some passages from Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to remind you of how pervasive this theme was. You don't need to turn to these. I'll send them out later. Here's Exodus 13. This is right after the first Passover ever, the firstborn of Egypt has been killed in the last of the 10 plagues, but they have not yet crossed the Red Sea. They're still in danger. And for the first time in the story, we're told about the pillar of cloud and fire. And we're told God led the people around by way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. It's the first time that's mentioned, and that theme will show up dozens and dozens and dozens of more times in Exodus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, and then in later passages that reflect back on this. Very next chapter, Exodus 14. Then the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, got between them and Pharaoh's army, which is chasing them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host, the army of Egypt, and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near all night long. One of the things that reminds us of is that God's guidance isn't just epistemological or cognitive. It's not just, do I go left or right here? It's also protective. It's also that he makes sure that bears don't come out and eat us along the way in the woods, that he's actually protecting us from harm. In Exodus 19, they have gotten to Mount Sinai. They're going to spend a year there receiving the Ten Commandments, learning who God is, learning who they are. And the first summary statement God makes in verse 4 of chapter 19 of Exodus is, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That you are not alone getting from there to here. I guided you, I carried you. The final passage in the book of Exodus is earlier in Exodus, we were told that God's glory... God's presence is up there on Mount Sinai. Moses ran into it for the first time at the burning bush early on. Then he brings the whole people to Sinai, and God's glory is at the top of Mount Sinai. And at the end of Exodus, they start moving, and they begin their 40 years in the wilderness. And notice how the book of Exodus ends. Then the cloud of glory, which covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord 
filled the tabernacle, which is mobile. They carry it with them in the wilderness. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then here's a summary statement of the 40 years in the wilderness. And it's the final thing the book of Exodus leaves us with. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out on their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. God is always with them. He is always leading them. Fast forward a year plus. Now we're midway through the book of Numbers. Israel has been sitting and camped around Mount Sinai for a year, and they have not been journeying. Now it is time to start the journey to the promised land. Another 38 plus years is still to come. And Numbers 9, as they, about, as they are about to take off, says this. So it was always like this, says Numbers 9. The cloud covered it by day, and the appearance of fire covered it by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that, the people of Israel would set out on their journey. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel would camp at night. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel would set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped at night when they ended their journey for the day. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. And even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, no movement at all for multiple days, Israel kept the charge of the Lord, didn't set out. The image you're getting is that God is the one leading on the journey and they are just following. They're not setting the agenda. God is setting the agenda. Sometimes the cloud was just a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they would just remain there. They wouldn't move anywhere. Then according to the command of the Lord, they would set out, and sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. When the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out, or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out on their journey. Whether it was two days, or whether it was a month, or whether it was a longer time, the cloud remained over the tabernacle, abiding there. The people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out until God indicated that they should set out. That is a picture of guidance. That's a picture of we're not making our way through the wilderness. God is guiding us. Numbers 14 is a passage that we'll look at in the weeks to come. It is the most disastrous passage in the entire Torah. It's the passage where for the final, the 10th and final time, Israel grumbles Israel disobeys. Israel does not follow God's guidance. And this is the moment in Numbers 14 where God finally swears with an oath, the generation that came out of Egypt is going to die in the wilderness. And it's not until the next generation is ready that they go in. No one from among the entire group that came out of Egypt, except Joshua and Caleb, enters the promised land because they don't follow, because they don't listen, because they don't obey. Numbers 14 is the crisis of the Pentateuch. And at first, God is going to basically is saying, I'm just tired of this people, Moses. I'm going to take you, and I'm going to start over with you later on. And Moses intercedes in Numbers 14. And here's what he says to God. God, if you wipe this people out for their disobedience, then the Egyptians will hear of what you've done that you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this promised land still to come, and they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people guiding them. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day 
and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people now, then all the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. You hear again that, that God's guidance for his people. One last passage, Deuteronomy 1 is at the end of the 40 years, they're just they're, they're encamped right across from the Jordan River, and Moses gives them the longest sermon in the entire Bible, which is the entire book of Deuteronomy, reminding them of what they've learned in the last 40 years. And one of the first things they are reminded of in chapter one of Deuteronomy is, then I said to you, I, God, said to you, do not be in dread. Don't be afraid of them, the people in the land. The Lord your God who goes before you he will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God has carried you as a man carries his son or his daughter all the way that you went from Egypt until you have come to this place, Canaan. And yet in spite of this, you did not believe in the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out of a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. Now, that was a lot, and, and there are tons more passages I could read there. What I want you to notice is that one of the main themes of the wilderness is not just that we're liberated from what we used to be enslaved to, not just that we're promised something to come in the future, but that right now God is present with his people and guiding them from there to there. And that becomes a model. That becomes a metaphor for the Christian life. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, at some point, I am sure you have wondered, I've come to a fork in the road. I could go to grad school, or I could stay in this job, or I could stay single, or I could go out with this person who I'm not so sure about, or I could live here, or I could move to there. And you've wondered, what does God want me to do? Does God have a preference for which direction I go here? And that's a guidance question. Now, at some point in the future, Lord willing, we'll do a series where we talk about that in more in depth. Today, my goal is not at all to give you a bunch of practical advice on how you discern God's guidance. My goal today is simply to try to persuade you that God is present in your life, guiding you, and specifically that there's only one prerequisite that needs to be true in your life for you to receive and profit from God's guidance. And so let's go to Romans 8 for the rest of our time. Romans 8, which Mary Sue read out for us, is probably a passage that you have heard before. God works all things for the good of those who love him. Um, if God did not spare his son, but he gave him up for us all, verse 32, if he's already done the really hard and the really costly thing, is there anything God wouldn't do to finish what he started in our lives? If he already got us out of Egypt, don't you think he's going to get us to the promised land? Now, we're going to, in just a moment, zero down and narrow in on just a couple of verses. But here's something that I want to encourage you to notice that I had read, like many Christians, probably especially Protestant Christians, I've loved the book of Romans for a long time. I've probably read Romans certainly hundreds of times. I worked for a campus ministry for 15 years. I wrote the, the curriculum on the book of Romans. Uh, I love the book of Romans. And yet... I had read Romans over and over and over again, and I never noticed this until a few years ago. A guy named N.T. Wright, who's someone that, that some of you have heard of, maybe the most brilliant biblical scholar in the, alive in the world today, makes an argument, and I find it completely persuasive, that Romans 5 through 8, which everybody already agrees is kind of a section, Romans 5 through 8 is all about God's assurance 
It's all about the fact that what God has started in our lives, Romans 1 through 4, we've already been converted, we've already received grace, we've already been justified. Romans 5 through 8 is all the assurance that he's going to finish what he started in our lives. It's, it's filled with promises. It's filled with some of the most comforting, beautiful passages in all of scripture. And N.T. Wright, if you want to turn back to Romans 5 real quick, we'll walk through this in 90 seconds. N.T. Wright argues that what Paul is doing in Romans 5 through 8, that's four chapters, is he is retelling the story of Israel through the lens of what Jesus has done. And so notice in Romans 5, especially verses 1 through 11 is kind of the introduction to Romans 5 through 8. Starting in verse 12 of Romans 5, going down the end of the chapter, the big character is Adam. Paul starts where the Old Testament story starts. Just as there was an Adam that started the story in Genesis 1 and 2, so Jesus is the next Adam, and he starts from the beginning, that Jesus is the beginning of the new creation, that God is starting over with Jesus what he was trying to do from the beginning, but which human sin had messed up. Jumping ahead to chapter 6, the big theme of chapter 6 is that we used to be slaves to sin, but we're now free and liberated which is what comes next in the Old Testament story. The people who were created in Adam ended up in slavery to Egypt, but God set them free. Chapter 7 of Romans then talks about the giving of the law at Sinai, that Israel had been slaves in Egypt, they were set free, and then they went to Sinai and they received the law, and it's good, and it's holy, and it's righteous, but because we are sinful, it lands on us as a force of death. It actually causes us to have our awfulness brought to the surface, And so chapter seven ends with this cry of frustration. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus will. And then Romans eight, which is the pinnacle of Romans. In some ways, it's one of the pinnacles of all of scripture. N.T. Wright argues, and I think he's absolutely right, that there's all this imagery that if Romans five through seven is reminded us, we used to be slaves and now we're free. We've been given the law, but we don't obey it very well. That now Romans 8 says, and we're journeying forward to the promised land. And so listen to all the echoes. Look at Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 14. Everyone who is led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Remember Israel in the wilderness, they've already been set free. The spirit of God is already leading them. And yet they're constantly saying, I think we should turn back and go back to Egypt. You didn't receive a spirit of fear to turn back to that again. You've received spirits leading you forward. Later on in chapter eight, three times, it's gonna use the language of groaning, which is right there at the beginning of Exodus. They're in slavery. They're longing for what God has promised in the future. They haven't received it yet. And they're groaning that God would bring them what he has promised them. And Abraham, in Romans 8, says, we are currently groaning, 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 as we wait for, and the language of Romans 8 is, our inheritance, which is what the the language the Old Testament uses for what's waiting in the promised land. N.T. Wright argues that Romans 8 is all about the way that God, through the Spirit, is present with his people right now, already liberated, but not yet in the promised land, walking and and wandering through the wilderness. And so I encourage you to read Romans 8 and to really get the promises and, and the logic of it in your DNA, in your bloodstream. And it's an amazing chapter. But what I want to do is two things. One is I want you to notice that the main player in Romans 8, especially the second half of Romans 8, which is where we're going to focus on, is the spirit. Not Jesus, 
not the father. The main focus of Romans 8, starting in verse 18, down to the end of the chapter, is the spirit. The spirit leads us. The spirit guides us. The spirit helps us. The spirit intercedes for us. I've mentioned it before in this series. I'll say it again here. And it's one of the reasons that we had Nehemiah 9 and Isaiah 63 read out loud. It's not explicit in Exodus and in Numbers, and in Deuteronomy, although I think it's there already, but later on, the prophets, Nehemiah, Isaiah, they look back, and they say that pillar of cloud and fire that mysteriously showed up and seemed to transport God's presence with the people and led them throughout the wilderness, that was the Holy Spirit. The pillar of cloud and fire is the Holy Spirit in the wilderness, guiding God's people, present with the people. Now, years ago, I was trying to just think through what exactly is Romans 8 saying about how the spirit works in our lives? How exactly does the spirit guide us? And there are two verses that I ran into and I was just stumped for a long time. And I want us to look at them. We're going to spend the rest of our time, just a few minutes in verses 26 and 27. It says this, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. First question, what's our weakness? And how does the spirit help us in it? Because we don't know what to pray for as we ought to. And yet, in spite of that, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, two things. That sounds really, really beautiful, one. And two, what in the world does any of that mean? That, is, that was mumbo-jumbo to me for a lot of years. One of the things, it's probably one of the reasons that I'm bad at a lot of things in life. I'm a halfway decent teacher. And one of the reasons I'm a halfway decent teacher is I regularly feel an overwhelming sense of, I have no idea what that means. And for some reason, I'm just unable to just move on and keep reading other stuff. And so I just stay there. And so I just stayed here for a long time. First thing I want you to notice before we try to unpack what those verses say, which are clearly about God's guidance, clearly about how the spirit helps us in our weakness, is that the very next verse is arguably one of the three or four most famous verses in the entire Bible, and it gets quoted all the time, especially when somebody's going through a rough season. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I have heard that quoted more often than most verses in the Bible, especially if somebody just went through tragedy or just lost something, it gets thrown out. I want you to notice that that verse often, when we quote it or it's quoted to us, it's often quoted completely out of context. It's ripped out of Romans 8, and it's just handed to us on a plate as if it's self-explanatory. But I want you to notice that it is logically the conclusion to what Paul is talking about with the Spirit in verses 26 and 27. One of my main arguments in the next couple of minutes is going to be because of what the Spirit is doing in verses 26 and 27, therefore we have confidence that verse 28 is true, that all things work together for the good of God's people. Here's one reason to see a link between these verses. Notice that the link between verse 26, verse 27, and verse 28 is that they all center around the same verb, no to know something. Verse 28 says, sorry, verse 26. Verse 26 starts by saying, here's where we are in the wilderness. We do not know what we should pray for. That's you right now. 
And I want to say two things about that real quick. One is that Paul is not saying that that is a result of sin in your life. He is saying that's because you honestly do not know what is coming tomorrow. And you're in the wilderness right now. You're headed towards the promised land. And he's saying you do not know how to get there on your own. And you don't. That's not a result of sin. That's just a normal state of affairs. Even more perhaps discouraging, but ultimately I think it's encouraging, if you understand it rightly, is Paul doesn't say anything in the verses to come that overcome that or remove that. And so I want to normalize something for you real quick before we move on. It is a normal state of affairs in the normal Christian life to have almost no idea what God wants you to do next. It is a very normal thing in the Christian life. To look to the future and be like, I have no idea where God is taking me. I have no idea whether I'm supposed to go right or whether I'm supposed to go left. I have no idea whether I'm going the right direction or whether at some point in the near future, I'm going to have to backtrack and turn around. That is a normal state of affairs. Any perception that you have, because you want it to be true, which we do, or because other Christians have told you, which is that the normal state of affairs is to always walk in total, absolute certainty that you know exactly what God is doing in your life is a lie. It is not true. It denies what Paul says here, which is there is something that Paul labels our weakness. And our weakness includes we don't see very far down the road and we don't know what to pray for. When he says we don't know what to pray for, he's not saying, do I use these words or those words? He's saying, God, do you, do you want me to go left or do you want me to go right? Like, like I want to lean into it in prayer and I don't know which, what I'm supposed to pray for. And Paul says that is our normal weakness in the wilderness and in the midst of it, the spirit helps. The spirit aids us. The spirit intercedes for us. Now notice, I got off track there. Verse 26 starts by saying, our reality is that we do not know which way to go. We do not know the way forward. We don't know what to pray for. Then verse 27 says, but somebody else, whoever this is, all Paul says, it's, it's he who searches hearts. Whoever that is knows what the mind of the spirit is, and then intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Then verse 28, which I think implicitly has a therefore in it, verse 26, we don't know where to go, but verse 27, the one who searches hearts, he knows what the mind of the spirit is. Therefore, verse 28, there is something we know. We don't know whether to turn left or whether to turn right around the next bend, but we do know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. We know that I do not need to fear that I will ultimately end up lost. I do not need to fear that just because I don't know whether to go left or right around the next corner, I don't need to fear I'm probably never going to get to the promised land. I'm probably going to die here on this mountain in Minnesota. I'm going to die in the wilderness, and I'm never going to get back to my car. I'm never going to get to the land of milk and honey. I'm never going to arrive where I'm supposed to arrive. You do not need to fear about that. And the reason is because of something the Spirit is doing in verses 26 and 27. So let's look at this for just a couple of minutes. And my main goal is that this would just be encouraging to you. One of the things that is so profound about these two verses, verses 26 and 27, is that twice in each verse, verse 26, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And in verse 27, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When you think about intercession, that's what this noun, this verb is about, you probably think about two things if you're a Christian. One is that like people, especially leaders, people like Moses, they intercede to God 
on behalf of the people of God. And then one of the most famous places is just a few verses later, verse 34. Who is to condemn us right now? Christ Jesus is the one who already died. Even more than that, who was already raised from the dead. And right now he is seated at the right hand of God. And what is he doing there? He is interceding for us. Jesus is at the right hand of God in his risen, resurrected body, and he is praying for us. He is interceding to God on behalf of a weakness, a need we have. That's probably not a brand new idea to you if you're a Christian. The idea is we continue to sin right now. We continue to disobey God. We continue to be weak morally. And when we do, Jesus intercedes for us for forgiveness so that God doesn't give up on us. That's probably not a brand new idea if you're a Christian. What is probably less familiar is that we are also told that not just the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is also interceding to God the Father behind the scenes for us right now. Which raises the question, what does the Spirit give us in interceding to God the Father for us that we don't already get through Jesus interceding for us? And that's the question. And here's what it is. If Jesus, as our great high priest, intercedes for us for forgiveness, for restoration when we turn away from God, the Spirit intercedes for us for our ignorance. I don't know whether to go right or whether to go left. And at that moment, the Spirit goes to work behind the scenes and intercedes on behalf of the saints. That is, I have no idea whether we're supposed to go left or right, but the pillar of cloud and fire does. The pillar of cloud and fire is leading and is interceding for us. So the question is, how does this work? What is going on here? A couple of things, and then we'll break it down in terms of the, just practically, what does this mean? The first thing is that when we're told that the Spirit intercedes for us, at the end of verse 26, the ESV says, with groanings, that's the third and final time groaning is used. Earlier in chapter 8, creation is groaning in frustration that is broken, that things are not the way it's supposed to be. Then we're told that we as Christians are groaning because we're not yet in the promised land, because our bodies are falling apart. And here, the spirit is groaning with groanings too deep for words. Groaning is a great metaphor in scripture that I think sometimes we make too abstract. It is literally, especially in the prophets of the Old Testament, it is an image that comes from a woman being in labor. Groaning doesn't just generically mean I'm frustrated. It's, it's, it's technically what a woman does as she is in process of giving birth to a baby. And the reason that's important is that groaning holds together two things that need to be held together, which is on the one hand, it's really, really painful. You don't groan because things feel good. You groan because you're frustrated and you're in pain. But on the other hand, and this is where the woman in labor image is so important, it's not just that, it is also incredibly hopeful because the pain is leading to something that's beautiful. The suffering is leading to glory. The experience of not the way it's supposed to be is leading to new life. And so when we're told that creation is groaning, that we are groaning, that the spirit is groaning, on the one hand, there's an affirmation. The spirit is frustrated for us. The spirit empathizes with us. The spirit doesn't like that we feel lost. But on the other hand, the spirit enters in with a real movement of hope. 
with a real movement of let's get this towards new life. Let's get this towards the, the kind of good end of this process. The phrase in the ESV at the end, groaning's too deep for words, is literally too deep for words there. It's just one word, and it's without speech. The idea is not that you speak in tongues and you mystically go through some experience and irrationally, super rationally, you just immediately know what the spirit wants you to do. The idea here is much more simple. The idea is Paul is saying, when you feel lost, the spirit is at work behind the scenes, groaning and interceding for you. And Paul only tells us one thing about the groans of the spirit. They are without sound. They are without speech. I think I'm convinced Paul just means one thing by that. You have to take my word for it. You do not have access to this empirically. You have to trust me behind the scenes, just as you do not know through your eyes or your nose or your ears that when you screw up for the 8,000th time in the Christian life, you do not need to doubt that God is not going to give up on you, that God is going to give up on you because Jesus is interceding for you at the right hand of God, but you have no access to that directly. You just have to take the word of God in the gospel that reveals that to us. When the spirit intercedes for us, Paul is saying, it takes place entirely behind the scenes. We have no empirical sensory access to it. Now, the real crux of these verses is verse 27, when it says, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the word of the will of God. This is the verse especially that years ago I'd run in and be like, that just sounds like nonsense to me. That just sounds like mumbo jumbo. I have no idea what any of that correlates to in reality. I have no idea what that means. I don't know if you've ever looked at these verses before or if you're even just thinking about them now, but here I want to walk through real quick here at the end how I kind of began to make sense of this. My natural intuitive reading of verse 27, maybe it's yours too, did two things, both of which I think are wrong. The first thing is I intuitively assume that he who searches hearts is God, God the Father, and that what he is, the one who searches hearts, God, what he knows is the mind of the Spirit, that is what the Holy Spirit is thinking, and that is some kind of like inner Trinitarian mind game. Hey guys, behind the scenes, buck up, because the Father knows what the Spirit is thinking. He knows the mind of the spirit. I would think, well, I already knew that because he's God. And two, how does that help me when I feel lost at all? And so I want to persuade you for two reasons that that's not what this verse is saying. The first thing I, I want to persuade you of is that he who searches hearts is not God the Father. And two, that the mind of the spirit is not a reference to what the spirit is thinking. Here's the most important thing to see here. The phrase, the mind of the spirit, has already shown up multiple times in Romans 8. This is not its first appearance. Go back to Romans 8, verse 5, where we are told, those who live according to the flesh, that is, those who are not in Christ, those who are not following Jesus, they set their minds on, they have the mind of the things of the flesh. But those who walk or who live according to the Spirit, they have the mind of they set their minds on the things of the spirit. It's the same phrase as verse 27, the mind of the spirit. And then he says in verse six, because to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on literally, it's to have the mind of the spirit is life and peace. So here's what I want you to notice. 
that earlier in the chapter, the mind of the spirit referred to not what the Holy Spirit is thinking, but to an attitude in your life. The mindset of the spirit is the attitude in a Christian's life that as they walk through the wilderness, and Paul's already told us, what is not going on is even if you walk by the spirit, you often have no idea whether you're supposed to turn left or right. There is no overcoming that. That is the normal state of affairs right now. So you're walking in, this, in the wilderness towards the promised land, and you're like, I have no idea how to get there. No idea where God is leading me. And yet, at the same time, there's another question, which is, and along the way, are you walking according to the flesh, doing what you desire, putting your own desires at the center of the universe, or are you walking according to the spirit? The second thing, going back to verse 27, is that he who searches hearts, just that little pronoun there, he, who is he? In verse 26, right before that, it's not talking about God the Father. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit intercedes. The Holy Spirit helps. The Holy Spirit groans behind the scenes. And he who searches hearts, I want to suggest this, that he who searches hearts is the Holy Spirit, not God the Father. And that what he knows, what he recognizes when he looks at your life and he searches your heart is whether you have the mindset of the spirit or the mindset of the flesh. That's what he's looking for. He's not looking for, do you know whether to turn left or right? He already knows you don't. What he is looking for is, is the posture, the mindset of walking according to the spirit or walking according to the flesh there. And if he sees, if he knows, if he recognizes the mind of the spirit, what does he do next? He intercedes for you according to the will of God. Here is something that is a huge category shift. And I'm just going to end with a couple of so what's here. Verse 28 is therefore, knowing that the spirit is at work like this behind the scenes, it is still the case. Nothing has changed tomorrow. Am I supposed to leave New York and go to this place? Am I supposed to drop out of my job and look for a new job? Am I supposed to go back to school? Am I supposed to stay single or get into a relationship? Am I supposed to change careers? Am I supposed to do this or this or this? Am I supposed to serve on the hospitality team this year at Neighborhood Church? And I have no idea what the answer is to any of those questions. And no matter how much you love God, no matter how much you love your neighbor, no matter how much faith you have, no matter how much knowledge of scripture and of God you have, your normal experience will often be, I have no idea what's coming next. And that's normal. And yet, the one who searches hearts is helping us in our weakness, and he's going to intercede for us to God so that we don't get lost and we get home. And there is one thing and one thing only he is looking for when he searches your heart. Not your IQ, not the institution that you have an elite graduate degree from, not how good looking you are or how much influence you have in society. He is looking for whether you walk according to the spirit or whether you walk according to the flesh. And if you walk according to the spirit, there is a guarantee that he will intercede for you to God. And now hear verse 28 all over again, almost as if for the first time. And therefore, even though we have no idea whether to go left or to go right, we do know that all things work together for the good of those who called and who love God, who walk according to the spirit. One of the most classic mistakes people make with Romans 28 is to turn it into this generic Pollyannish things in general, just work out well for everybody. Romans 8, 28 is not saying that. 
It's saying that even when you're in the wilderness and you're already called, so you already belong to God, you've already got out of Egypt and out of slavery to Egypt, and you are walking according to the spirit, loving God and your neighbor rather than your own desires, that you will never get lost. Even though you will often feel lost, even though you will often have no idea whether to go left or right, even when you're in those moments. Now, here's the thing that almost all of us do as self-centered sinners, that we're only willing to feel comfort and certainty to the degree that we become aware of whether going left or going right is a better choice. But Paul's already said, that's our weakness. We often will have no idea. There are things coming in the years to come in our church Things coming right now in our life, in our marriage, in our family. I have no idea what the right choice is. I have no idea which way we're supposed to go. And I look back, and even now, I think back on choices I made, and I have a really hard time knowing whether it was the right choice to make. That's the normal state of affairs. But what I do not need to worry about is that I'll get stuck in the wilderness, that I will not get to the promised land. There is a scene. Um, actually, before I share this, let me put it this way. As modern people, it's probably true of all of us throughout history, but especially as modern people, we tend to think that all of our dilemmas are primarily at bottom epistemological dilemmas. And what I mean by that fancy phrase is if I could just know what I'm supposed to do, then everything would fall into place and the world would be right. The problem with that is that it's 100% not true. You could know exactly every turn you're supposed to make for the next 30 years and still be a terrible human being at every turn you make. And everything in the world could be wrong. Here is what I think Romans 8, 26 to 28 is reminding us of. The most important thing in your life is not whether you know what to do next, but whether you are willing to obey God, even as you still don't know. The willingness to obey God is infinitely more important than your knowledge of what he wants you to do. Some of you are really, really smart. Some of you have off-the-wall IQs. Some of you are incredibly gifted, and that is of absolutely no advantage of you compared to somebody else in the wilderness. Because no matter what, you don't know what God is up to. You don't know where to go next. But what all of us struggle to do is even while we still don't know, are we going to be committed to do God's will no matter what? To walk according to the spirit rather than according to the flesh. One of my two or three most favorite scenes, and I think it's one of the most powerful scenes in Lord of the Rings, is early on, halfway through the first book, there, you remember this place is called the Council of Elrond. They found the ring. Um, uh, who was it that, that found it? Was it, uh, oh, it was Bilbo that found the ring earlier on. They've got the ring. Gandalf now understands what it is. And they get together in Rivendell at the Council of Elrond to discern what do we do next? It's a discerning the will of God moment for the fellowship. And there's all kinds of proposals. Let's destroy it. Let's bury it. Let's hide it. Let's use it against him. And all of these are bad ideas. And nobody really knows what they're supposed to do. And the turning point of the story, and it's such a good reflection, what Paul is saying here, is Frodo stands up and he says this, I will take the ring, even though I do not know the way to Mordor. The willingness to do what is right infinitely is more important than the knowledge of what is right. I'm not saying knowing which way to go isn't important. I'm saying being committed to walk according to the spirit is ultimately more important than your knowledge of God's will and of God's ways. There is one thing that God looks for 
There is one thing that he cares about when he searches your hearts, and it's not your IQ. It is whether you are committed to doing his will. And so almost all of us feel that if I could just have more information, I would feel more confident. What Paul is saying is that whether we get lost in the wilderness, and this is one of the things we learn from Israel in the wilderness, and, and this is where the warnings of scripture come in. And, and I'm trying not to emphasize this too much in this, seat, in this sermon series, but it's there, is if you're a Christian, you've already been liberated from slavery to sin and death, but you're not in the promised land yet, which means, and I've used this language before in this series, that, that the Christian life is dramatic. And what I mean by that is that whether it ends up as a comedy or a tragedy is in some real sense still to be determined. And your 40 years in the wilderness can turn into one of two things. It can turn into a pointless death march that you're just waiting until time runs out and then you're done. Or it can turn into a journey to the promised land. And which of those two your life turns out to be is ultimately focused on whether you are obedient to what God is doing, not your IQ or your knowledge of his will. And so I want to say three things here at the end about obedience. Obedience to God's will, three things about it. One, it is what God most desires from you. It is the most important thing in your life. Two, it is what the world and your neighbor needs the most from you. Not your insight, not your IQ, not your gifts, but your holiness, your love for God, your obedience. And three, it is what your flourishing most deeply depends on. And yet, how often do we live our lives where we sideline obedience as the 37th most important priority in my life? And all of our anxieties, and all of our worries and all of our focus goes on to the other stuff of, I, I want to know whether I should go left or right. Over and over, we are told that what God looks for when he looks into the heart of his people is love, is hope, is faith, is obedience. Because there's a lot of passages that I could end with, but I want to read one verse. This will be the last thing I say. And I want to encourage you to consider maybe memorizing this verse. It's not a famous one, but I wish it was. In Second Chronicles already, right? Second Chronicles. <laughs> Second Chronicles chapter 16, King Asa is at a turning point in the road, and he has no idea what to do. And in chapter 16, he's told this by a prophet. Doesn't matter how big your army is. Doesn't matter whether you make an alliance with that country to protect yourself from that country. Here's what matters, that you trust in God, that you obey him. Because verse 9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the entire earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. That is almost a restatement of Romans 8, verse 27. He who searches hearts is looking for one thing, whether you have the mindset of the spirit. The eyes of the Lord are running to and fro throughout the entire earth right now, and they are looking for one thing, hearts that are blameless towards him. Hearts that are willing to do what God wants us to do. That is the most important thing in our lives. And so I am not at all promising that if you do A, B, and C, you will know tomorrow what the next 20 years of your life should look like. In fact, I'm saying if you currently think you know what the next 20 years of your life look like, you're almost certainly deceived. And you're almost certainly misassociating God's voice with your other junk. What I am saying is that even as you regularly, day after day, week after week, month after month, have a sense of, I don't know what God is up to. I don't really know whether I'm supposed to do this or whether I'm supposed to do that, is that 
what you want to center back onto is not how can I find out? How can I find out? How can I overcome my ignorance? What you want to come back to is, am I willing to do what he asks even before I know what he is asking me to do? And if that is true of you, that one thing in your life, you will not die in the wilderness. You will get to the promised land, even though you will often not even be able to see your hand in front of your face because the immediate next step is that dark. And so let's be a people who walk according to the spirit and who trust that it's God who's guiding us, not ultimately us who need to find our own way. And so let's pray.